0: Hello and welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast, I'm your host Jacob Granger. Each week we bring you the most interesting conversations from around the media industry, and today we bring you one last session from our news conference on improving communication within your team. In these days of working from home and constant calls on Zoom and the like, there's something about the virtual working environment which is just not the same as being there in a physical newsroom. Talking to our colleagues is harder when we're all just faces on a screen or voices through a mic. When doing our usual editorial meetings in the virtual world, the words and tone that we choose are more important now, as we no longer have the key in-person signifiers like body language to get our true intentions across. And how we structure these conversations is also key, as it is easier now for people to feel left out. Today, we'll hear from Valerie Fridland, a professor of sociolinguistics at the University of Nevada. And she'll be giving you more than a few practical tips and exercises that you can integrate into your virtual meetings today to foster deeper and stronger connections in your teams before we jump in i always like to add that i love to hear from our audience so please send any thoughts on the show to jacob at journalism.co.uk without much further ado all that's coming up after a quick word from today's sponsor This journalism.co.uk podcast is supported by Memberful, which is the easiest way to sell memberships to your audience. You can monetize your fantastic newsletters through Memberful with no need to connect to a third-party email provider. Try it for free on memberful.com, where you can also take up pro and premium plans to really start cranking up and customising your membership offering.
1: One of the biggest problems with shifting to virtual meetings is that we don't have that interactional ability to be in a room and have that physical space shared with people.
0: That's Valerie Fridlands, professor of sociolinguistics at the University of Nevada.
1: This doesn't seem like a big thing, right? We think, okay, well really meetings were about talk anyway, but they actually very much weren't just about talk.
0: Sociolinguistics is often thought as the intersection of language and society. It's the small details that we often ignore, but are impactful in how we form relationships. Now all of those cues are suddenly gone, which we'd normally rely on to tell us how someone is feeling.
1: When we meet face-to-face, we have a lot of other cues, um, particularly body language, that we pay attention to that tell us a lot about how we're aligning with each other and how we're feeling about what other people are saying, and also whether we want to jump in and say something else. We can tell by where people sit in a room, how they're aligned with each other. We can tell by their head nodding, by their facial expressions. By the way, they're holding their bodies, so if they're kind of holding in tight or they're really loosey-goosey, all of these things help build that picture for us of the types of responses and ideas that people are bringing to the room.
0: The problem is that for many of us, working from home and talking to colleagues in this virtual setting has felt very isolating.
1: When we are just disembobulated heads floating around a gallery. We're all coming from our own silos and our own spaces. We're not sharing a physical space. We're also not sharing a psychological space. You know, who knows what's going on behind that camera? Um, The dog's barking, the babies crying, the really good leftovers that are sitting in the fridge, tempting us. These things are all interrupting the flow that we had in when we were in a physical space where we were all sharing the same physical environment.
0: And the other interruption I think we've all experienced is just pure exhaustion. The off sighted Zoom fatigue, if you will. You think about the many luxuries of working from home and many of us wonder, well, why should we be exhausted? Well, we need to start accepting that for all the many video calls we do, this does have a toll on us.
1: I don't know about you, but spending the day on meetings is not exactly the thing I wake up excited to do. Now, they're very necessary. Meetings are the one tie we have to our workplace now that we're all in this remote world. And in fact, it's often the only lifeline we have to seeing our colleagues and interacting in a social way. And now that we're all virtual all the time, sometimes we haven't even met some of our colleagues and Zoom is our only experience with them, which makes the interactions we have there even more important. And since a lot of times we don't just sit on Zooms to hang out, we're doing meetings, we're doing work, we may be losing some of this interactional experience that we had when we were in a workplace. So we no longer run into each other in the normal spaces that we have.
0: This is true, many pandemic hires have not actually met their colleagues yet, and that's strange when you think about constantly having calls with these people you hardly know, and the virtual setup also makes it hard to get to know them. I invite you now to think about how all of this applies to the meetings you regularly have. Editorial meetings where you're sharing story ideas, assigning deadlines and shaping your pieces or maybe one-to-one progress reviews or updates on a personal situation with a line manager.
1: So when we were walking through the hallways or by the water cooler or, you know, that other place we run into each other, we could chit-chat, but... Important work got done when we were chit chatting. So, we'd have conversations about the types of things we were working on or the background of a story and those kinds of things. And now we have no access to that kind of information.
0: So, to summarize, when we come on Zoom to talk to our colleagues, many of us just feel exhausted by this new setup. Many feel isolated with nobody to turn to. And there are very few dead giveaways to know exactly how someone feels. Add to that, our Zoom meetings seem to be all business and there are fewer opportunities to shoot the breeze and catch up with colleagues or have more informal check-ins about work. So the question is, where do we go from here?
1: We probably all have heard of the song, I Want to Bring Sexy Back by Justin Timberlake. Well, I want to bring small talk back. Um, And what I find is that we tend to not do the social niceties anymore now that we are not in this space.
0: There's this term in sociolinguistics called phatic communication. It's communication which serves a social function, such as social pleasantries that don't really offer valuable information, but are important for improving our connections. Basically, small talk can have big impact. There's a lot of truth to this idea that our phatic communications, our casual catch-ups if you like, have just fallen away in this shift to virtual because whether you're on a video call or messaging your colleagues, there's just something about that medium which makes it hard to crack a joke. Maybe that's because there's just so much more emphasis now on being productive while in this apparently more comfortable setting we're more reluctant to be seen as slacking off. Nevertheless, it's really important to bring small talk back.
1: The social niceties like, hello, how are you? What did you do last weekend? How's the weather? Oh my gosh, it sucks. This helps us establish connection. It also is really important for giving us a common ground. Now, the idea of common ground is really important in linguistics. It's what we draw from in order to share an experience to make us feel related, a part of a team, a sense of community. We also have to start that at home. We have to start that in our newsroom, in our meetings. If we don't know each other, if we don't trust each other, if we don't have a sense of shared experience with each other, it's really hard to work as a team. And in fact, if you look at research in workplace environments, they find that when employees share weak social ties, the types that we are experiencing now, this actually inhibits knowledge sharing. But strong social engagement actually encourages people to participate more in meetings and, in, and other workplace environments by making them feel psychologically safe and also valued.
0: I want to repeat that for emphasis. Weaker social ties between colleagues inhibits knowledge sharing. Stronger social ties increases participation. In a creative and collaborative workspace like a newsroom, you can start to see how detrimental it is to have parts of your newsroom isolated, and feeling unable to chip in. Being psychologically safe and valued is also a really important point that I want to stress, because a newsroom also needs to be a place where ideas and norms can be challenged. People simply won't do that if they feel they're on the fringes.
1: Think about information sharing. If you are bringing something to the table, but you're not really sure what other people are going to be doing with that information, you might keep it close to the vest. It's also a very socially inhibiting experience to be on Zoom. Uh, We've all been there where you're staring at the screen and it feels sometimes awkward to speak up. So for all these reasons, if we don't have comfort with each other, if we don't have a shared background, if we can't relate to each other, then we're not going to be able to really have equitable distribution of, of talk sharing. So the problem is now that we've shifted to these virtual interactions and we're all exhausted from them, it's very, we get a lot of Zoom fatigue and we think that, okay, we need to get work done. This is only important stuff here. We focus on our agenda-based talk instead of realizing that a lot of other types of talk are just as important for encouraging collaboration and making us feel safe.
0: So what can be done? You basically need to create more opportunities for interaction, both during the meeting itself, as well as outside the meeting beforehand and after. Valerie has lots of really great ideas that you can introduce into your next newsroom meeting that we're going to talk about next. The first one is what to do when you're joining a virtual meeting and you're hanging about in those awkward first few minutes before the meeting starts and you've got lots of unfamiliar faces on screen. This is actually a frequently wasted opportunity to foster deeper social connections.
1: If people don't know each other, have someone assigned to make ice-breaking introductions. If you're the meeting facilitator, it's absolutely requisite for you to be on the Zoom. Are on the meeting at the start, at least, if not five or 10 minutes before, so that you can start with this small social chit chat, right? You should be the leader doing this. But even if you're a participant, this is on all of us to have better relationships. So I think we need to not let the other person do the work, which is sometimes what we tend to do on Zoom. So we need to all make that effort to get to know each other, to reach out. If you see someone you've never met before, ask them about themselves. If you know other people, ask them about what they're working on, ask them about what they did, uh, talk about the weather. All those things we used to do, let's bring that back.
0: That one should be a piece of cake for a bunch of chatty journalists. But we're all human and I'm sure many of you can relate to that situation. The next tip is that not all meetings need to be max capacity make some time and space for smaller group conversations.
1: When we're in a physical space and we can sort of choose where we sit and we have these smaller sort of areas, these smaller spaces that we make our safe space where we talk to the people next to us, we can actually do that a little more on Zoom. We don't tend to because it does a little bit more work and it sometimes takes a little bit longer. But time isn't our enemy if what we're doing is actually more productive and will make us more successful. So if we need to build in a little extra 15 minute period so that we can start with smaller breakout rooms and have the question of the day or have talked through our, our story ideas with smaller groups then that helps us both get to know those people a little better because when you're only looking at two or three people on a screen, it's a lot less socially inhibiting and also we really are forced to interact. And then you can come back to the larger room. And that way, if you mix it up, who people are talking with in different meetings, you really get to know each other and it builds that sense of community.
0: And if you want to go one better, If you can spare the time, that is, you can have scheduled social calls without a work-based agenda.
1: If possible, you can actually have non-work-centered virtual get-togethers where you sponsor activities that are fun, that are simply to help encourage social ties. This would be things like trivia contests, bingo, um, virtual name tags, which is uh, on the internet everywhere if you just... um, Google it, you'll find a lot of different options to do that and fun little ways that you can incorporate those into meetings. These can be short, they can be long, they can be in a virtual space. Or if you're in the same area, they can actually be outdoors somewhere. There are a lot of ways that you can actually bring back the social.
0: COVID providing, of course. To take a different approach, what you can do to improve social connections is to actually normalize silence. This seems like a given concept to think about, but people get uncomfortable if nobody is talking. Watch. Yeah, did that make you itch? This is one of the notable shifts from physical to virtual workspaces, which is that there are different social rules, if you will, on how much is considered too little and too much silence.
1: When we're in face-to-face meetings, we tend to think that talking is the norm, right? This is what we expect to do. If there's silence, it's uncomfortable. So if you've ever been in a space with someone physically and no one's talking that's very uncomfortable, it gives you the creeps, you kind of look at each other funny. Because in Western culture, speech is what we consider the norm and silence we treat as problematic or dispreferred or uncomfortable. Um, But this is a problem when we move to a virtual space because we don't have that same interactional capability when we're on Zoom or our Teams or whatever the virtual space you use. We are all muted. A lot of times we don't even see the people we're talking to. In fact, the design of those programs only allows for one person to talk at a time, so we can't have that normal overlapping speech that we have when we're in face-to-face context. So the problem is we're bringing a face-to-face interactional norm into this virtual space with us when it doesn't actually fit that virtual space at all.
0: A very key point here is that different people have different thresholds for silence. Directly, what this means is that some people need more time and space to feel comfortable to speak up and others less so. This can vary on a variety of factors.
1: The interesting thing about silence is that we have different cultural norms and sometimes even stylistic individual norms for what constitutes appropriate uh, silence in a conversation while being still comfortable, acceptable, and actually giving space for others to talk. When we look at anthropological studies, we find that we are socialized into these norms very, very young, and this varies across cultures. And even if you're not directly necessarily a second language speaker or coming from a different culture, your cultural background may have been inherited with you. We also find that this might vary by gender and it might vary by just personal uh, preferences so that our tolerance for silence can really vary. Uh, Not surprisingly to many of you, I'm sure Americans have very little tolerance for silence, about a second before they start feeling it's uncomfortable, British speakers tend to be able to go another 0.3 seconds without starting to squirm in their seats. But what has been noticed is that Japanese and Finns have a long tolerance for silence, which often then causes problems when we're an interaction with people that have different norms for silence like that because some people feel over talked to and like they can't get a word in edgewise and others feel like people are disinterested or disingenuous and so we have this clash of norms
0: so as we think more about the need for general chit chat if you're not careful what can happen in a virtual setting is the same people those with a lower tolerance for silence end up hogging the platform and sidelining those who need a little bit longer to warm up to the conversation what this calls for is not to feel so compelled to fill the space, which allows for more conversational turn-taking. For this next part, it's really important that you think about your last virtual meeting.
1: When you were in your last meeting, what did you notice as um, the distribution of talk terms? Just think for a minute about your meeting. Who was speaking? Who talked for the most time? And really importantly, how was turn-taking distributed? So who decided who got to speak? Was it around Robin style? And if so, were there any guidelines provided for how long everybody was supposed to participate? There are also different types of selection of terms that can happen in addition to having a facilitator determine terms. You can also have self-selection where people just jump in. And a lot of times meetings are a mix of starting off with other selection, meaning someone else is telling everybody who when to talk and self-selection where people just jump in. Um, and you can also direct questions at people, which then selects specific people. But Sometimes we don't even pay attention to the fact that turn-taking is something that has to be planned in some way.
0: Intentional and structured turn-taking. This is actually something which comes really natural to us, so it should be easy to pull off.
1: And this is highly socialized and routinized,
0: meaning we learn this from the time we're
1: little. We learn how our culture does turn taking. We also learn how to recognize turn transition cues, which are points in a conversation where the floor is open for others. And while we think this is sort of just the organic way that meetings unfold, uh, when we're talking, John talks and then Sally talks, and then Sue has something to jump in with. And it feels like this is just a natural organic way that conversations happen. Um, What we find is actually it's really reflective of institutional and social power displays in how these floor turns are allocated and how long floor turns go to different people.
0: Just let that sink in for a moment. Even if you do practice and encourage turn taking in your teams, you might be unknowingly playing into a set of institutional biases. For example, you might be starting with your most senior reporter first and then working your way down the perceived ranks What I'm saying is you can go out of your way to break this kind of routine turn taking. These biases and perceptions also apply to gender as well.
1: For instance, when we look at floor turn allocation in institutional or workplace context, and we look at meeting um, interactions, what we find is that women tend to take many fewer turns on the floor than men. And when they do take floor turns, we find that other participants often feel like they talked a lot more than they did. And in fact, if you ask people after a meeting who did the most talking, it is almost always women that they mention because of the social historical programmed ideology that what women say tends to be trivial or less important. Um, This inhibits women from talking because they know, A, that they will often be talked over because of this, and B, because they also find that they don't really have a safe space institutionally for making contributions. Um, We find this goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. There was a really interesting study in 2019 that looked at the interactions between Supreme Court justices in the United States. And what they found was even there, the female justices were talked over and interrupted at a much higher rate than the male justices, not just by men, but also by women, by attorneys, by other justices, which limited the contributions they could make. And in fact, they changed the way oral arguments were delivered based on this study because they found that it wasn't giving equitable distribution of floor turns to the female justices.
0: What this really means is that the meetings you have and the inputs that you collect might on the surface seem like the sum total of ideas from your team, but dig a bit deeper and you'll realise that you're actually losing out on ideas because A, dominant voices control the conversation. B, whoever is calling people to talk does so in a structured way, and C. Parts of your team might simply not feel safe to speak up. These
1: types of turn-taking inequalities tend to prioritize certain perspectives at the expense of others. So we hear from one person most of the time, and other people may feel that they're disenfranchised or not valued in this conversation. So this is a really important thing to think about when you have your next meeting. You can actually try to start paying attention to how these turn-taking procedures operate. And so we can also work in very clear-cut ways to provide solutions for this. And I wondered how many of you might have ever received some sort of email or memo prior to virtual meetings that detail exactly the explicit communication policies and procedures that they should take. So for instance, have you ever received anything that told you whether your mic should be on, whether, how long you should stay muted, whether your cameras should be on? These are things that we often don't articulate. We just kind of go with what everybody else is doing. Um, and this can actually increase the tendency for inequitable turn taking.
0: It's easy to see a Zoom call as this really informal conversation where social ground rules need not apply, or maybe they never existed in your physical meetings. So why introduce them now? Well, the reason why is that it helps everyone feel like they can pitch in. And isn't that something we all want?
1: The other thing they should outline is how turns are going to be distributed. If we know what we're walking into, it makes us a lot more prepared to do whatever the required turn-taking model will be. Um, It also makes us feel more comfortable when we're jumping in if we're not a person that would normally jump in. So if I'm um, hesitant to speak on the floor and no one's ever said, okay, this is one of those things where I want everybody to jump in, I might not do it. But if I have an explicit communication from the meeting organizer or facilitator that details, all right, we're going to start by going around the room. And then I want everybody else to listen to that person and wait till I call on you. Or I want everybody to address a certain topic and we're going to go by that topic um, this will really help people that either talk more than they should or talk less than they should understand their role in that meeting another thing that should be detailed is how much time people should take because if i take 10 minutes um, that's five minutes of your time right so for are in a one-hour meeting for every minute i take it's one minute less someone else can talk Again, explicit policies, that's all we need is just some clear cut policies and people do tend to listen to those and they pay more attention to their own behaviour if it has been detailed to them somewhere in print prior or in a communication.
0: That's a really solid tip, thinking just about how editorial meetings work, where we might take turns to pitch a story idea to the editor and then there might be opportunities for colleagues to suggest relevant angles, sources or formats we hadn't considered particularly for a sector where ideas are the currency of our work. In news, if you don't have something to contribute to the discussion, that can look bad on you. But as we've discussed, there might be other reasons for that underneath the surface. So that's another reason to come up with a structured game plan for your meetings.
1: And we might form this impression on those that don't jump in, that they are have nothing to contribute, they don't have ideas, Um, Rather than simply that we're not leaving them space to do so, that there might be some social or institutional um, barriers to them participating, so perhaps we can just provide them an alternate way to express what they have to say, and this can be either chat that we really strongly encourage people to put things in the chat and not feel like they have to speak in person. Or they can be invited to email or um, you can even address people before the meeting, say, here are the things we're going to talk about. I'd like to get just a couple ideas from everybody through email before we start the meeting. That way, the meeting facilitator can actually look at what they've received and then draw on those different aspects with people that they have paid attention to in previous meetings are not talking a lot. If the meeting facilitator or the manager or the editor finds that this type of allocation of speaking terms is inequitable and that there are some sort of barriers to distributing them more equally, then they need to step in and actually make sure they're calling on people to talk and maybe having private conversations with those that tend to overtake the conversations to talk less in those meetings. So there are a lot of solutions that we can have that will make this a more fair and equitable idea-sharing meeting than it might be previously.
0: As we all know, it's not just about coming up with ideas. Journalists are also assigned stories to cover as well by the editor. What can happen is that editors sometimes present their opinion on why it's important to cover. Of course, this context can be really, really useful, but by forwarding an opinion, you can shut down other ideas, even if that feels more like opening the floor up. This is called stance taking language in linguistics. And what this means is positioning yourself relative to what you're talking about. So the next time the editor says, I think this is a really growing issue, let's do a piece on it. That's telling people what to think not asking for their input. It is a
1: stance taking marker. Um, And, but we use a lot of those in our language, even when we're simply trying to share information. Um, And this is a problem, not because it's bad that we share our opinions, but when we're really trying to do idea generating, where we're really trying to do knowledge sharing, and we really want open discussion that will allow out of the box thinking. If we are telling someone what we think, it often colors the options that they have in the directions they might give us and so this doesn't mean we shouldn't share opinions but instead what we can do to really open up conversation is come in with a very open topic generation and then give our opinion so instead of saying oh i think that whatever we can say hey this topic has come up and i'd love to hear people's ideas on it that's completely open it doesn't take any stance or position relative to the the topic and it really opens up the communication and conversation. It builds a community because it makes people feel valued for their opinions rather than just following yours or positioning them so that if they're saying something different than you, they're actually sort of coming up against you. And then it's fine, of course, to say that you have an opinion after that. But if you really want open communication, you need to use the most open language. And this will really invite a diversity of ideas and input.
0: Finally. If you're a journalist sat there thinking, yes, I would love all of this. I would love some of these policies in my newsroom. How do you go about channeling that up to your bosses? if you're already in a fractious working environment.
1: Communication starts through communication. And so sending an email and saying, I just attended a workshop and they were talking about how to make virtual meetings better. That's sort of not saying we do bad things. It's simply saying, here's some good ways we can do things and say they recommended a clear communication policy. And uh, I have found just on some Zoom meetings that I'm never sure exactly what my contribution should be. I would love it if, you might be willing to share your thoughts before a meeting on how we should participate. Um, I think that's a really good way if it's it's a context in which you're not absolutely sure how your message will be received. Um, Or of course, you can always give my email out and I'll be happy to talk to you.
0: (laughs) And that's a great place to leave it. A big thanks to Valerie for delivering that great workshop at News Rewired. If you want to take some of these ideas into your newsroom, send your boss this podcast, or as Valerie recommended, do drop her an email on fridland at unr.edu and she can send relevant advice your way. Main takeaway from me, stop winging your virtual meetings and schedule some icebreakers and catch-ups with specific allocated times and ground rules. That should do it. If you like what you heard today, you can check out more of our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts by searching and subscribing to the journalism.co.uk podcast. Want to jump on the show? I'd love to hear from you. Drop me an email on jacob at But that's all we have time for today. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.